following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. If you wanted to measure the power of an, uh, an automobile or any kind of moving vehicle, a tank or a tractor or anything like that, how would you measure it? How would you describe the power quotient? You'd measure it in horsepower, not cat power. That's not very powerful, but horsepower. You use horses to draw a carriage, so you'd use horsepower to describe the power of a car. Or if you wanted to measure the power of a source of electricity or, or some kind of other uh, engine of some kind, there are different ways of measuring power, of demonstrating the power of the object that is under consideration. And perhaps even when you uh, boys draw pictures of cars or make Lego creations of cars, you think about, I wonder how much horsepower this would need or this would have in order to accomplish the design for which I have made it. Well, you can test its load, you can test its limits, you can test its capabilities if it's a real life machine or vehicle. You can even test the power of a person by getting him under a set of weights or giving him a stress test at the doctor or whatever the case may be. And once you've determined what the power is, you can then decide how to channel that power, how to use it to accomplish certain ends. Uh, if you know that you're able to, to lift up a particular sized log and you're doing yard work, well, then you know that you can just pick it up. Or if you know if it's beyond you, you're going to go get you know, some kind of machine to help you pick it up or maybe even just a wheelbarrow or something for leverage. But all of that comes to this point, and whatever our pursuits are, whatever we're trying to do with power, you want to be able to do that thing, complete that task, with confidence in the power sources, confidence that leads you to use those sources or or subjects of power. Well, what kind of power does our Savior have? That question is answered abundantly in this text. We know that he's teaching with authority. We know that he's coming healing all manner of diseases and sicknesses. He's casting out demons. He's doing great and wonderful, marvelous things. But up to this point in Matthew's gospel, he hasn't done one thing that is described here, and that is raise the dead. But in our passage, he even raises the dead. That's how powerful he is. What does that communicate about Jesus Christ? Nothing is beyond his capabilities. Nothing is beyond out of reach of his power. He's able to do it. He's able to accomplish whatsoever the Father has sent him to accomplish. Do you believe it? The synagogue official did. This woman with a hemorrhage for 12 years did. What did they know? about this Jesus, that he was able to help. So what did they have in this Jesus? They had confidence. They had faith. And what Matthew shows us, as he gives us this picture of Christ's 
uh, of Christ's immense and totally sufficient power, what Matthew shows us is that new life is received through faith in Christ the King. Matthew's been giving us a picture of Christ as King, philosopher King, sage King, wise King, healer King, redeemer King, all Savior King, reformer King. And now we see that through faith in Christ the King, this King, new life is received. Indeed, only through faith in him. And that's the big idea of our text tonight. In this demonstration of power, we have a text that is for us about faith. New life is received through faith in Christ the King. We'll look at this uh, on the, the three divisions, or two divisions in the three parts that this text gives us. And we have these three scenes um, where he is at the beginning, after disputing with Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist uh, in verses 18 and 19, and then uh, where he is along the way in verses 20 through 22, and then once he gets to Jairus' house or uh, the synagogue officer's house in verses 23 through 26. We're going to break down the text that way. So the first heading then is asking for a miracle, verses 18 to 19. Second heading, approaching in secret, verses 20 to 22. And then third heading, Awakening from the dead, verses 23 to 26. Asking for a miracle, approaching in secret, awakening from the dead. Asking for a miracle, what Jairus does. In verse 18, look at it with me. While he was saying these things, engaged in this disputation over um, who he is and what he's doing and how his disciples behave in the world as he's doing, as he's saying these things to them, his disciples, the disciples of John, perhaps even to some Pharisees who are uh, in the mix, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. We know his name is Jairus. I want you to consider a couple things about Jairus. What's going on in his life? His daughter has just died, Matthew tells us. Mark and Luke give us a few more details, not at all contradicting Matthew, but his daughter, at the very least, is on the verge of death, is about to die, and he knows she's about to die. She's all but dead, so to speak. So what does he do? Look at how Matthew characterizes this man. He came and bowed down before him. Just as the leper did at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8, he came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her and she will live. He expresses faith in Jesus while assuming the posture of a devotee, or at least of somebody who's rendering honor, due honor and respect to Jesus. What, what does this picture, a child dying... And then coming to the Lord in a posture of devotion, what does this call to mind? How is Matthew describing Jairus? He's describing him, be it Matthew's intention or not, certainly the Holy Spirit's intention, describing him in very Job-like terms. Modesty, humility, and great faith. What did Job do when his children died? 
He rent his garments. He bowed himself to the ground and worshipped the Lord who had given and who had taken away. And so too, this man Jairus is pictured for us as coming to Jesus as his daughter's dying or having just died, bowing down to Jesus and honoring him by seeking his help in his desperation. He seeks the Lord and help under affliction. What great faith he has. Now, this faith is not a perfect faith. Notice what he asks Jesus to do. He says, come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, why do I say this is not a perfect faith? We have a picture of perhaps perfect faith a little bit before here in, uh, in, Matthew, um, in Matthew chapter 8 when the centurion comes. And when Jesus says, I will come and heal your servant, what does the centurion say? He says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Uh, and when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. <clears throat> Indeed, that is the case here, what Matthew's doing is setting up a comparison. Yes, Jairus has great faith that Jesus can even raise the dead, but it's not quite as strong as the centurion's. Nevertheless, there's no good reason to allow a weak or imperfect faith to prevent us from coming to Christ with our every need. Jairus didn't hesitate. He didn't falter. He didn't stumble. He might not have had as great faith as a centurion, but the object of his faith was the same, wasn't it? Jesus. And so you might consider those around you, these great giants of the faith who seem to be able to bring everything to the Lord in prayer. And you might be setting yourself up in contrast to them and think, man, I, don't, I just don't have faith like that. Yeah, I believe in Christ, but surely he doesn't want to hear from me, does he? No, of course not. That's not the case at all. Jesus welcomes Jairus and responds to him, what does he do? He gets up and goes. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. Don't let a weak faith prevent you from coming to Christ for help and for aid in times of affliction. Rather, let us study to strengthen our faith and to inform our faith. And thus, Matthew gives us the account that follows here. Here, this man asks for a miracle. Are we to ask for miracles as well? I, I wouldn't say so. We don't ask for the Lord to return to us those who have, who have gone on from this life. That, that was for a very unique time in Christ's earthly ministry where that would have been appropriate. But we do ask for great, priceless things, don't we? Things difficult, even impossible to obtain apart from the help of our Savior. We ask for the Spirit's consolation in our troubles. We ask, as we discuss in Sunday school today, we ask for peace of conscience and forgiveness of sins. We ask for the assurance of the Father's love for us. We ask for evidences of saving grace, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of our relatives. Brothers and sisters, do you bring such bold and great requests before our God and to the throne of grace, do you bow yourself before the Lord of glory and say, Father, come. Christ my Savior, come. Grant to me this that I'm seeking. Peace of conscience. Evidence of saving grace. Assurance of love. Even spiritual life from the dead.
Well, in verse 19, we see Christ's purposes in coming. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. Why does Jesus get up and go? Why does he immediately respond to this man's request? I've already hinted at one. One is to demonstrate, to prove his immense power, that he's able to do what the man has asked him to do. There's no hesitation here. There's no, ah, you've asked me something. I, I'm not sure I could do that, or I can't, I can't do that for you, Jairus. I'm sorry. There's none of that. Immediately gets up, and he goes. But the second purpose that he has here is actually to strengthen and to confirm Jairus' faith. He recognizes that the man's faith is weak, that he's not just asking for a word. He's not, he doesn't have great enough faith in Christ for that. He believes Christ has to come and actually touch his daughter to get her to rise from the sick bed and from the deathbed. But Jesus doesn't reprimand him or anything like that. Rather, he sets off to strengthen his faith, and he brings his disciples along with him that they might bear witness to it. And the remainder of our passage shows us how Christ accomplishes his twofold aim here, to demonstrate his immense power and then to strengthen and confirm the faith of this synagogue officer, this Jairus. And actually what he does along the way accomplishes both of these aims, doesn't it? What we see now in verses 20 to 22 in the approaching in secret part of the passage where this woman with a flow of blood, a hemorrhage, a mysterious disease that Luke tells us no physician could solve over 12 years. When this woman comes up to him, what do we see? A demonstration of Christ's immense power that should result in the strengthening of Jairus' faith even as Jesus is going to do for Jairus what he's asked. So we'll break this down into two parts as well, verses 20 and 21. We see this woman who, along the way, approaches surreptitiously. She approaches from behind, under the radar, sight unseen, cloak over her, her head and her face that no one would recognize her. Why? Why does she do that? Well, it tells us in verse 20. A woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. You see, suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years would have made her ceremonially unclean, not only physically laid out and laid low, but also separated socially and religiously from the people of God. <clears throat> she was not supposed to be around anybody else in public. And here she was in the middle of this big crowd of people. Of course, this rabbi wouldn't want her to come into contact with him, but she believes beyond a shadow of a doubt that if she just touches the tassel that dangles off the corner of his outer garment, and she'll be healed. Why would a woman presume to come to Jesus for this healing? Why? Up to this point, we've had only men come to Jesus, and that's typical of the culture. But why would this woman think that he would have anything for her? Well, perhaps she's heard that he's on his way to heal a little girl. Perhaps she has heard that he has a regard for the fairer sex and their, uh, and their needs and their afflictions and their trials, that indeed he is an equal opportunity and nobler of persons and healer of men and women alike. Perhaps she's heard these things about Jesus, and she hopes with great faith that he will have some healing benefit for her as well, that he will save her as well. She knows something about this Jesus, something that 
Jairus also knows about this Jesus. Nobody is out of reach of his grace. Nobody. Male, female, white, black, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, bond, free, whatever the case may be, you are not out of reach of the grace of our Savior. She believed what the Gospel of John testifies of him. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. And like many others in the Gospels, in these accounts of his earthly ministry, she desires to come into contact with not even his body, but his garment. She sees in Christ that image which is given to us in Psalm 133, verse 2, of the anointing oil falling upon the great high priest, even upon Aaron, uh, and, and cascading down his face into his beard and down to the very edges of his garment where the oil drips off like so much grace. She sees that in Christ. She wants that grace that she knows he has. Indeed, in him, Isaiah 57 is fulfilled. I have seen his ways, God says, but I will heal him, speaking of Israel. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. In making this approach, even under the radar, as it were, surreptitiously from behind, this woman shows that she believes that this Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise, that he is full of grace, even for such as her. But why in secret? Well, as I've already said, her condition would have mounted this wall of separation and isolation between her and the rest of Jewish society. She is a person of great modesty, imposed upon her of great shame religiously and, and cultically, of social loneliness and perhaps also of psychological inferiority. Who is she to approach Jesus and to address him? No, no, no. He won't even know that I'm there. I'm just going to touch the tassel on his garment. Nobody... Because of this, nobody could discover her treasure of faith. Nobody would have known it. There would have not been occasion for her to demonstrate it. There's no relationship here. And also, nobody would have known the horrors of her affliction, of just how great and desperate her need was. And perhaps you have in your life something as well that sets you off from others. Maybe it's not something you speak of, not anything that anyone knows about, but something that inside imposes upon you a sense of shame, something you hold back from other people that you dare not speak of, and perhaps you shouldn't. Do you? Well, if so, if you ever feel this way, as this woman demonstrates by her secret approach that nobody could understand or sympathize with you because of that thing in your past or that thing in your present, Consider the example of this woman. She, yes, was crushed under the weight of this terrible woe, and yet she still came to Jesus. She did not stay at home. She heard that he was on the way, and she went to meet him. And she was commended for it. Look at what he says. 
Jesus turning and seeing her said, Daughter, daughter, take heart, take courage, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. And at once a woman was made well. What does this tell you about our Savior? We've considered quite a bit about her. But though he is far off, though he is separated from us by an infinite chasm of godliness and holiness and righteousness, yet he is near to the brokenhearted. He will recognize you even if you seek to come up through the back door, as it were, to come in secret, to hide your approach. He's full of grace and love for the brokenhearted, for the lonely, the modest, the ashamed, the inferior. Come to him for healing. That's what Matthew is telling us in relation of this passage. Come to him for commendation, for salvation. Come to him for saving grace. Apart from him, there's no remedy for your affliction. There's no, uh, there's no healing for your woe. There's no salvation from your sin. And Matthew is very concerned to set before you a Savior. See, in Mark's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, the verbs that are used uh, are various verbs for heal. And Luke uses technical medical terminology, which makes sense he was a doctor. But Matthew uses a term that more generally means save. And it's the term that's used in the speech. Jesus literally says to her, your faith has saved you. The woman had said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be saved. What is Matthew illustrating for us um, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there's salvation in Christ for all kinds of people. You can come to him with great confidence. He is able to save you. What Jairus suspected is true. What this woman believed is true. Do you believe it? Boys and girls, you hear your parents set before you Christ as Savior day in and day out around the dining room table and in your living room. Brothers and sisters, you open your Bibles and you read of a great Savior. Do you believe Him to be able to save you? Indeed, He is able to save you. And He's able, fathers and mothers, to save your children. And He's able, young and old, to save your brothers and your sisters, the most shameful people you know, the most lonely people you know, if they but come to him, if he but draws them by his spirit. Well, in verse 22, she's healed. Jesus pauses his journey. He speaks with twofold revelation. I've already said he speaks of her. He commends her. Your faith has saved you. He calls her a daughter, but he also says something about himself when he speaks here. He speaks for her benefit, to end her fear. He speaks for Jairus, to strengthen his faith. He speaks for the disciples, to instruct them. Daughter, do not fear, be of good courage. Jairus, look what I can do. Surely, I am going to save. Disciples, nobody is beyond me. 
Nobody is beyond my saving power. He speaks also to correct her for hiding away, to correct her perhaps misconception of who he is and what kind of rabbi he is, that he will not scorn her, he certainly will not ignore her. He speaks also, interestingly enough, we see this more clearly perhaps in Luke and Mark's Gospels, he speaks also to give some time for Jairus' little girl to die. Now, why would he do that? He does this as well in the incident with Lazarus, his friend. Uh, But we're told in Mark and Luke's Gospel that she actually dies while they're on the way, shortly after or right during his pause to deal with this woman who's come for healing. Well, only to demonstrate his power all the more. Remember, he's proving something about his power even as he's strengthening the faith of those around him. And this faith, he tells us, Something about it. Your faith has made you well. That faith is precious. That it is the conduit, the instrument by which this woman would receive a benefit from him. (coughs) That it is powerful. That it is indeed necessary, indispensable. You must have it. Without this faith, even if she were to be healed, her Her physical healing would be but a temporary comfort. It is only by faith that this is made good. It is only because she is called daughter and brought into the family of God that there's any real benefit to being healed and being able to come now into worship and be restored to the household of God that is Israel. And Jesus tells us something then about adoption. Indeed, this is the source of all spiritual consolation and courage. Why can this woman take heart? Because she is daughter. Through faith, she's been brought into the family of God. And then finally, with his power proven in the woman's restoration to full health, having demonstrated the measure of his power, now he magnifies the measure of his grace by his words. Imagine hearing those words drop from the Savior's lips. Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. What gracious speech is this? That he can tell you something about that which is at the root of your very being. Your beliefs, your faiths, your trust, your confidence in God. Now the next scene only further proves his power and it magnifies his grace, as we've just considered along the way. In verses 23 through 26, Jesus finally gets to Jairus' house. And when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players in the crowd in, in commotion, noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. I think the King James puts it, mocked him to scorn. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. The news spread throughout all that land. This final scene is interesting, isn't it, in verse 23? The details that were given, it's, it's characterized by the shadow and the cacophony or chaos of death. Jesus enters into a kind of pandemonium. You see, at least since the time of Jeremiah, we saw this a little bit in chapter 16, but there are clearer passages even in Jeremiah of scenes of mourners Uh, professional mourners, wailers, coming into homes where there's been a death and and carrying on. And they were hired to do this. This was kind of their thing. Um, Whether they're hobbyists or paid professionals, they would be booked to come and to put on the show 
perhaps to distract the family, to comfort the family. In Greek culture, not Jewish culture, in Greek culture, there would be instruments involved to scare away evil spirits. So there's a hint of superstition in here as well. But whatever the case may be, this loud lamentation by flute and pipe, as well as by human voice, was customary in Israel. And it was a kind of music, not a music that would soothe, not like what David played before Saul, but this would be the kind of music described here in noisy disorder, kind of music you see in a scary, or you hear in a scary movie, <clears throat> when something bad's about to happen, it, it causes you anxiety, it reminds you of death, that there's a ringing in death, a cacophony, a disorienting sensation when we think of death. And that's, that's the scene that Jesus comes into. And notice the first thing he does. In verse 24, he said, leave. The Lord of life casts out all characterization of death. He casts out the clouds of chaos. He cleans up the house. Isn't that interesting? See, our king has come Matthew tells us to save his people from their sins. He has come to dispel the gloomy clouds and chaos of death, so he sends these professional wailers away. They have neither faith nor right or privilege to witness the king of life reversing the ravages of death. Look at how they respond when he says <coughs> that the girl is just asleep. They begin laughing at him. They, Where are the professionals? We know she's dead. We wouldn't be here doing all this if she wasn't. But whatever, man, we're out of here. No resistance even. They just leave. But why does Jesus say that the girl is asleep? That's a curious comment, isn't it? Leave. We get that. For the girl has not died but is asleep. Modernist interpreters of the Bible will say, well, she was probably just in a coma. They didn't know any better, this or the other. Even so, if he was able to wake her up out of a coma, that's pretty amazing as well. But no, she is dead. The whole scene is a scene of death. Matthew and Mark and Luke are all very clear that this little girl has died. So why does Jesus say she's sleeping? He's doing a few things here. First, he's making a profound theological comment, which we confess in the Shorter Catechism. What happens uh, to believers when they die? Well, our souls are translated into glory, but our bodies, what? Do rest in the graves being still united with Christ, to do rest in the graves until the resurrection. If you are resting in Christ in life, then your body will rest, fall asleep, as it were, in the grave at death. The sting is taken out of death a bit, isn't it? Because when we go to sleep, you expect to wake up. Jesus is making a profound theological comment here, and he's comforting those who hear. Jairus' wife and Jairus, they're present in the room during all of this. They're not cast away. They're listening intently to what Jesus says. And when Jesus says she's but asleep, you can imagine a mother's heart lifting at that, being heartened. And so too for us, naturally speaking, the separation of soul and body is a very scary prospect. And even many believers shake and tremble on their beds as they near that moment, sobering as it is. But remember what Christ's words are in this instance and in others besides, that at death we but sleep in the body, 
souls being still conscious with God in paradise. He gives us instruction for our comfort, brothers and sisters. He teaches us not to fear death. Even now, before his resurrection, he's removing the sting as a great physician would, removing the sting of death out of the scariest uh, experience that we will ever undergo. And then in verses 25 and 26, finally, after speaking and instructing and, and, and casting out the forces of death from the scene, we see his immense power, his unlimited power revealed. When the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her, grasped her by the hand. The idea is that he grasped her hand and pulled her up out of bed. And the girl got up. Now Mark and Luke give us other details of Christ by a word waking the girl up and her spirit rushing back in, being reunited with her. Matthew is much more terse, much more quick and to the point in relating the action. And the action as Matthew gives it to us is this expression of power. Christ extending his hand, coming into contact with dead flesh and then raising it up to life. With a touch, he restores her to life. In this, Jesus, our Savior, shows not just power over death, but great significance, especially in light of what had just happened along the way with the woman, with the, defile, with the defiling hemorrhage. Jesus is so much greater than the great high priest of Israel. He who was to be the, the, the tip-top agent of life in the religious life of the people. Jesus He outranks him infinitely so. He's above the infection of death's defilement. Indeed, he has the power of an indestructible life, the author of Hebrews tells us. And so when he comes into contact with defilement, with leprosy, as we saw in Matthew 8, and then with the defilement of this woman, it goes away. He doesn't get it. When he comes into contact with death, it's not that now he's defiled, no, but death is turned about face. This is the glorious report we bear in our lives. We see in verse 26, this news spread throughout all that land. Of course it did. This is amazing. And so too, as Christians, we have come into contact with the living and reigning Lord who raises us up out of spiritual death, out of our sin and our trespasses and our transgressions, who says but a word, who gives but a touch, and we rise. So does the report go out of us that we have been raised out of darkness and into light. All other supposed power sources of life are indeed powerless. Nothing else, no one else can do what Jesus has done in this passage. This will be the only account that Matthew gives of a resurrection, of a bringing somebody back from the dead. But we see Jesus do this at other instances, uh, in John's gospel in particular, in, in doing it in public, in raising uh, the young demon-possessed lad who seems to have died in Nain, and then also calling Lazarus out of the tomb. Christ alone has the power to do it. Christ alone is our hope and our stay. Christ alone is our recourse then. 
in all of our needs for all of manner of salvation. And Matthew shows us that in order to tap into, to come into contact with, to leverage, if you will, to put it crassly, to leverage the power of Christ, what is needed? Indeed, faith. New life is received through faith in Christ the King and through faith alone in Him. In Christ's saving of the sick and the dead here, we behold His limitless power. And in His words, we hear of His infinite grace for sinners. So let us receive then in ever fuller measure the new life that He alone has power and grace to give. And let us do so through faith, which like an open hand receives some good thing from our Lord and our Savior. That's what this text compels us to do to come to the King for life. Let us pray. O Lord, our God in heaven, we bless your name and we thank you that you have indeed given us life in Christ, that you have made this promise to your people to come and to heal them of their affliction, to remove from them their woe and the defilement of sin and to grant new, even resurrection life. We thank you for the mighty deeds of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the record of them so carefully and so beautifully composed. We thank you, Lord, for the Spirit who even now is enlightening our minds in the knowledge of this Christ and making intelligible to us these words that you have inspired. Lord, we pray that you would press upon our hearts the likeness of our Savior and our Redeemer, that we might be more like him and being more like him, be more faithful. Be more glorious, be more obedient, be more lively in reflecting your glory back to you. We dedicate ourselves now to your service for this week ahead. And we, de and we dedicate to you, Lord, a, a portion of that which we have received from your hand. And do we turn it back to you with great faithfulness that you will continue to supply for our needs. Lord, we pray that you would be honored now in the extension of your kingdom, and using these gifts, our offerings, this dedicatory offering for your purposes. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.